218, the mystery at the world's core. Every great question generates its own thick umbra, which requires of us our waiting, the passage of precious months and years. The Bodhisattva's integrity appears when we hold to uncertainty and during the inner struggle. Then we are pregnant with waiting, groaning with waiting until time comes to aid us and the new way is born. Is it Emily? I was telling her she was muted, but I was muted. (laughs) (laughs) In a letter to his brothers, the poet John Keats wrote about living inside the mystery. It struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean, negative capability. That is when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Along with uncertainty, Keats is embracing the essential insolubility of our dilemmas. The Bodhisattva's imperfection appears as a not knowing and openness in in our innermost hearts. This condition will not clear up eventually. It is a truth of our nature. This is the first time that I've ever heard anyone talk about the Bodhisattva's imperfection. Uh, Trouty, is that new to you? You're, you're muted too, Trouty. I don't know if you were here that time, Trouty, but there was a whole bit on, on the imperfection of Bodhisattvas. You're still muted. There. Yes, no. I just unmuted. I, I have okay. a book propped up that I'm working with for my okay. project. So it, okay. I had to move it. So have um, you ever heard of that? Um, I would not say that I did not, but I cannot recall any instance at the moment. So not not knowing... I don't know if that's what he means. Well, he he appears at here as appears as not knowing an openness in our innermost hearts. I think he's taking a little poetic license here. Well, I was actually joking that I am not knowing. I'm sorry. So oh, okay. I, I did not apply. I did not apply to uh, Keith. I definitely see where the poet John Keats was pointing to what we call not knowing. Oh, I do too. In another (laughs) chapter, maybe two weeks ago, we read a lot about the imperfection of bodhisattvas, and that's what I'm questioning. Oh, okay. And and I've never, I've, I've never um, heard that. Okay, at a certain point, even our wit, wisdom, did you read, Gail? Not yet. No. I, okay, I I you're next. Come, I was supposed to come before you, Kim. You are, yes. I usurped you, but I'll, <laughs> I'll back down. It's all right. Um, at a certain point, even our wisdom can be an obstacle to growth. In the inner work, as in diplomacy, it is sometimes better not to make things clear. When we have the mind of beginning, things are unformed and still vigorous. The inner work increases a kind of positive blindness. We become blind to the world. We, oh, let's see. We meditate instead of going to the beach. At the same time, our blindness offers freedom just as it brought to Tiresias, the blind seer, special knowledge of fate. We are like the child who sees a vision of the Virgin while reciting the prayer, Hail Mary, full of grapes. (laughs) Our not knowing seems richer than our certainty. 
I like that. <laughs> the Hail Mary full of grapes? Well, I mean, we don't even know what we're doing, really, is what he's pointing to when we're in not knowing. I mean, we don't even know how to do it right. <laughs> and yet it's an opening. I love that. So you're saying we don't know how to not know right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think one of the um, things that attract people to religions generally is its answers to questions that um, typically can't be answered, right? That can't be answered. That's a nice way to say it. Yeah. Like what happens when you die? <laughs> yeah, we want some reassurance or a certainty. But um, he says here, our not knowing seems richer than our certainty. I like that. Did Emily read? Well, I think it's my turn, isn't it? Again? You already did. Oh, okay. <laughs> Trouty. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> One of the foundation stories of Zen Buddhism shows how uh, it is to rest in interdeterminacy. Bodhidharma is the semi-legendary person who brought the meditation tradition from India to China long ago, shortly after arriving in China he was summoned before the Emperor Wu of Liang. The emperor who had endowed many monasteries asked, what merit have I earned? No merit, said Bodhidharma. The emperor then asked, what is the first principle of the holy teaching? Bodhidharma replied, vast emptiness, nothing holy. Then who is this before me? asked the increasingly puzzled ruler. I do not know, said Bodhidharma. We can say nothing about the mystery directly, yet every day we move into it and through it and are sustained by its graces. When we are disciples to its ways, the nothingness beneath our feet befriends us. Darkness comforts, not knowing is, is a plenty. In our blindness, we trust. We depend on what lies beyond the limits of awareness. Because we are not blocked by our seeing, we are like convalescents. We feel the thousands, thousand arms of Kuan Yin bearing us, bearing us up. Bodhidharma's integrity is to claim nothing so that he can embrace whatever comes. Falling asleep. Falling asleep is a traditional image for coming into accord with our not knowing. It is like doing nothing, but goes even deeper into the dark core, allowing the imagination of the world to work through us, the way in actual sleep dreams appear. Such sleep is without the element of struggle and sacrifice characteristic of the early descents. It includes darkness and blindness as its fertile ground. To fall asleep in this way is to fall into eternity, into the Tao, into the realm of magic and surprise. It is lucky, allowing time to pass and the universe to come to our aid. Old paintings show the sage Manjusri asleep on the flank of his companion, the lion, also snoozing. In the ballads of the Scots border, young men and women fell asleep on a hillside and were taken into fairyland for several, seven years. I, um, I really love, uh, I never thought of falling asleep as a form of not knowing. I really, um, that's really interesting to think of it that way, don't you think? I mean, and we crave it. <laughs> we crave not knowing. <laughs> we just want, you know, to kind of um, descend into this 
peaceful. And some people attach a lot of uh, significance to dreams. And that's what he's talking about, the way in which actual sleep dreams appear. Mm -hmm. So allowing the imagination of the world to work through us. So that's where we figure things out. My mother was a great believer of that. And also, like I'd bring my work, my new artwork to her, and she said, well, let me sleep on it. And then she'd she'd analyze it the next morning, but she'd have to sleep on it. Yeah. yeah she, uh, she really trusted uh, that process. Yeah, it's, it's very quiet. It's like we're diving into some deep, quiet place. I, I had an argument the other day with a family member, and I didn't know what to do or how to respond. And I just decided to go to sleep. Finally, after I got past thinking I had to say something or do something. And the next morning I woke up and it became very clear to me how to communicate. It was, but I sure didn't know before I went to sleep at all what to do. And it's a good thing I kind of stuck with that because I would have screwed it up if I tried to. Well, some people say, well, let me walk around the block. You know, they do that, which is a similar. Oh, let let me sleep on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You, I think you're always safe if you do that. Uh, in in my way, especially if you consciously kind of give up trying to figure it out. You know what I mean? You know, just kind of it's like putting it on the altar of you know yeah. whatever wisdom is out there <laughs> to to kind of come through. Mm-hmm. Here is a writer's experience of that surrender, of being overcome by her own inner life. I sat down to work on my novel and had such resistance, I couldn't prop open my eyes. I conked out for 20 minutes. When I woke, I had to force myself to sit at the desk. But then a whole scene just came. There is a close relationship between darkness and the creative. This does not (laughs) mean that artists must be drunks or even unhappy. That is a sentimental idea. It is just that the way leads, that the way up leads through the way down. Mm -hmm. It is just that the way up leads through the way down. Yeah, that's that's interesting. That's the premise of um, the inferno, right? The uh, that's the premise of what? Uh, the inferno. Oh, the inferno. I I heard informal. So sorry. <laughs> okay. When we step into a moment or a new work, we do not have the abilities we need because we do not know what we need. We feel inferior heavy, hopeless. We may think that we have no ability at all and indeed that we never did have a genuine talent. Through these emotions, we enter once again the descent. Eventually, we discover anew that the thing to do in the night is to sleep, to give ourselves over to compassion, to harmonize with the dimness about us, and then to stumble back into awakening by taking up our given task. And so we do. We work. The musician plays, the nurse sees patients, the broker makes trades, the pilgrim meditates. We persevere, exhausted, despairing, slow, wading through mud. The malign angel of the mood presses like the grave on our chests. Accepting such heaviness, we find that we are content to be helpless, foolish, without hope. In such contentedness, we rest as if in a hammock, as if in our mother's arms. Through this resting, we are reborn. Doors open, branches of light come streaming through the dark. Then we are competent again. The air fizzes, the mountains are alive. We have achieved the new moment. 
boy, I do need this. <laughs> uh, do you think he's describing yet? <laughs> is he describing Zazen too? He really uh, is. Not the meditation per se, I would I would think. But as as in practice. I think he's it's kind of like letting go in a in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, um I, this this paragraph reminds me of did anybody any of you here read Eat, Pray, Love? Mm -hmm. That Elizabeth mm -hmm. Gilbert, yes. Gilbert book. Yes. You remember at the beginning, at the beginning, she was um, contemplating, you know, this relationship she had and how she needed to end it and how to do it. And she was just in this intense pain before she went on her journey and was in the bathroom and crying. And, you know, it was in the, at night, you know, just was all wrought up about the end of this relationship or what should she do? And then she uh, related that she heard a voice literally say, Elizabeth go to bed. <laughs> I, I loved that part. And so she, you know, she was all, you know, wrung out emotionally and just followed what the voice said and went to bed. And eventually everything happened the way it happened. You have to read the book, right? <laughs> it was a while ago. <laughs> but do you remember that, Trouty, that part where she was at the very beginning before she set off on her journey? No, she did, she did not know, but I did not remember all the detail that you just uh, yeah, told it's, us. It stuck with me. And, you know, that's, you know, yeah, just just go to bed. <laughs> mm. It's a form of Zazen. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> And Melena's now with us. Oh, good. Okay, who Trotty read, it's, right? Yes, I it's did. It's on me. Okay. Uh, it is said that the last calligraphy of the great Zen teacher Yamamoto Gimpo was the character dream. How distant is the past and the future? How insubstantial all that we have done? Even our crimes grow vague in retrospect. Dreams provide a necessary cloudiness to the data of the senses. We dream the world and ourselves into being and the wisps and banners of eternity still cling to us as an irreducible freshness. Chuang say dreams he is a butterfly and wakes to question his life. Am I a man, he asked. Who dreamed he was a butterfly? Or am I a butterfly dreaming that he is a man? To bless the imperfect, to enter the not knowing is to make a voluntary return to darkness, the source. Descent into mystery is a late form of the plunge into night. Mystery is what we don't know, what doesn't fit, what we have not made into shape and order. It tells us that surprise is at the core of life, terrifying, but also delicious. The awkwardness of the real. <clears throat> if we look at an elk, it is not at all like the idea of an elk. It is not pure, cute, lissom, or elegant. It has ticks on its neck. Its coat is patchy in summer. And the way it stretches its, its leg and looks back over its shoulder is beyond admiration. The difference between the animal and the idea of the animal is awkwardness. To relish the imperfection of actual being is a form of integrity that is anchored in the senses. Like other happinesses, it is its own discipline. It provides a vessel for the imagination that doesn't appear if we are just making things up without reference to the genuine strangeness of life. <coughs> 
When we embrace awkwardness, we enter our own lives. Cinderella is better prepared for the world than her stepsisters because she sweeps and sews. Particular, inconvenient, unromantic activities that develop her character. So, Malen, we were talking right at the beginning of the difference between a spiritual teacher and an ordinary clergy. And here, this is kind of like an ordinary clergy, isn't it? Someone who just does the forms and learns from those. Mm -hmm. From the foundation, her imagination and her naive and discontented dreams can flow out of the little cottage and up the steps of the palace. Awkwardness is a discipline that has set her free. So this is like what he was talking about in imperfection, isn't it? Awkwardness. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, Milan, it is your turn. Thank you. In its origin, awkwardness means a backward motion. And whatever the spirit is rushing ahead and projecting out toward an ideal, a backward motion steadies, steadies us, drawing the soul in. The experience of a, 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 a awkwardness. Awkwardness, thank you. The experience of awkwardness is twofold, beginning with a sense of shock. This is not what I expected, we think. Then, as we continue to gaze, we see, but it is true, it belongs, it is more real, it amplifies me. We find in ourselves a tenderness for what is revealed even though we did not seek it. In just this way, the common griefs of life bear the enlarging sting of awareness to us, breaking the spell of routine and consciousness. As character and steadiness deepen, what could have been a trauma at the time of the second descent become, becomes something to observe a wave of the universe. I want to say that those sentences, this is not what I expected, but it is true, it belongs. It is more real, it amplifies me. Um, made me think of a memorial I went to a couple of weeks ago of a, um, an in-law. Um, my daughter's um, mother-in-law who passed a year ago, they had a memorial and they talked about her entire life beginning to end. I learned things I didn't know about her. And, but at the end of her life, uh, last 15 years, she struggled a lot. She had a lot of difficulty, emotional, physical, and it was very rough for the family. And then she passed. And but seeing the memorial, it was more complete. It looked like an entire arc of a lifetime. And it made me think of um, that Walt Whitman um, quote from Song of Myself, um, something about um, paradox. Oh, if I contradict myself, then I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. <laughs> and I loved that. It made me think of um, Olivia, the, the woman whose memorial I went to. Um, I don't know why, but that, those sentences in there, um, you know, how, how we have an ideal about what a person is, or even ourselves, it's so much richer than that. Thank you. Thanks for listening.
So I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, there's something really rich, too, about the imagination. I mean, that's kind of where I lived my life. But I was really into octopuses, and I, you know, I, I drew and painted octopuses for a while. And then finally, I saw an octopus. I went to San Francisco, and in the aquarium there, they had octopuses or octopi or whatever they are. And I was so disappointed. I never wanted to have anything to do with octopuses anymore. But they had become in my mind so much that, that uh, so in a, I guess I, I take the opposite thing where, where uh, the reality is a little disappointing compared with how I imagine it. How is it disappointing? I'm curious. Well, when I was sitting today, I was doing a, a body scan, but I was doing it on the plant that was on the altar rather than on my body. Mm -hmm. And then I started to imagine aphids um, because there, there are so many aphids, um, not a, yeah, aphids and uh, sucking on the leaves and ants crawling on the leaves and bouncing the leaf up and down. And, you know, it was a, a real uh, like a circus. But the actual plant was pretty dead compared with what I was imagining. So, so anyway, I kind of take the opposite view, but that's okay, isn't it? It sounds like a Disney movie, Kim. You know, <laughs> it was, it was right, right on the altar. <laughs> well, I, I thought I was going to be leading Gaia meditation, and so, the, so all the last few days, I'm, I'm not going to. But I had these ideas of of ways of meditating about the earth, you know, and then I figured out that you don't have to do a body scan of your own body. You could do it of a rock or any object. Oh, and then I did it of the little statues on the altar and I saw things in them and the carving and the way they were constructed that I'd never seen before. I started at the base and I just slowly moved up and, and you know, I stare at them a lot because I'm timekeeper a lot and and I, I saw them all together differently, so. Yeah, well, Kim, if you had done the same thing with the octopus at the aquarium, I mean, really settled into looking at that octopus without the preconceived idea of octopus. That <laughs> they would look like mine. It might have looked like your imaginary. <laughs> That's why I was disappointed. I think you're right that if I, yeah, I, but I was so off. Okay. So who's reading now? I do not know. Did you read? Malen read. Then maybe I should go. Okay. Yeah, thank you. The old Chinese teachers used to try to reproduce the surprise of the real using shouts and blows. Well, yeah. <laughs> One of the greatest of these guides, Linji, three times asked his teacher the same question about fundamental reality, and three times his teacher hit him. Sorry for laughing. Pardon me? It's funny. Go on to me. Okay, go on. Uh, well, we already read about this a number of times, right? But anyway, uncertain what to make of these events, he told his story to another teacher saying, I don't know whether I was at fault or not. The second teacher said he exerted all his grandmotherly kindness and you come asking whether you are at fault or not. <laughs> and with these words, Linji had a great awakening. It is easy to think of the teacher's blows as obscure and in the past, as awkward, in fact. But this story came to the aid of a woman when she was buffeted by the transience of life. Okay, so here's the story, I guess. Well, okay, I'll read. As my father was dying, I could not comprehend it. Like Linji, I was struck hard and didn't push back. 
down to my toes. I did not know or understand. I went into my fear and grief and into his pain too, not with the thought of changing it, but just to go into it honestly. And I found this indigestible pain to be also very liberating. No longer outside of things. I was buoyed up by the universe. I didn't know why he was dying, but I trusted his dying. Now that I have lost him, he's everywhere and also in me. I am my father now. Wow. <laughs> when we meet a new, diff new and difficult event, we usually flee it or try to harmonize with it. What cannot be escaped or aligned with is awkwardness, the sacred grotesquerie in every relationship, whether with a tree, a job, or a person. When we embrace or enter the pain, that painful dissonance in our experience, we have the peace of someone who is in the right place in life. Even if we have just been struck or have been thrown in prison, we will not suffer more than is right because we are at peace with eternity. Awkwardness is so true that it pulls us, in, pulls us to it, drawing us into the community of the real. Snake soup. Uh, a Madeline, winter rain. When we are immersed in the great uncertainty and hardship, a companion and counter process arises involuntary as a dream. A shard of the world appears, a consoling fragment, an awkward piece to save us. We notice something, we remember something, we are reminded of something, and this insignificant particle brings us out of the fog and into common life again. Resting in uncertainty and ambiguity, we have found a stillness, a space between things. Then the stillness itself throws up something new, like tulips out of the dark ground. At such a moment, everything is particular with wonder. We don't distinguish between our pains and our pleasures. Pain can be transforming and liberating. Pleasure can be sterile. We are fascinated with what is emerging before we are interested in its name. The Bodhisattva makes light by working close to the dark, by immersion in not knowing. She lies down like the dead God in mystery. There in what John of the Cross called the lucky dark, glimpses and tastes appear. These will endure lifelong, summer lightning, a red fire engine in a sandbox, a walk on a <clears throat> beach during which a friend discussed suicide, a man with his head in his hands, weeping, hands that tremble and set the legs to tremble too, fingers enormous and the buttons they fumble with, so small, so small, the body appearing for the first time as amazing as the moon. We stumble upon these marvelous bits bright not because of their content, but because they stand against the dark eternal ground. And the new life brings a sense of humor as well as wonder, the instinct of the moment, as well as the ability to include the awkward as an old Chinese story shows. I'm gonna pass and let somebody read the story. The temple cook was in a hurry and gathered a snake with the greens for the soup. Every one of these hungry vegetarians agreed the soup was delicious. Unfortunately, the abbot found the head of the snake in his bowl. The cook was summoned. Do you see this? asked the abbot. <coughs> Immediately, the cook seized the snake's head and ate it. Oh, thank you, he said, and turning on his heel, he left. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs>
Do people eat snakes? Yes. Yes, they do. You're saying that, Cody, like you have. I haven't personally. I've, I wanted to try. And, you know, what's funny is my neighbor, he shot a big four-foot rattlesnake uh, about a month or two ago. And the only reason why I didn't get it was because it was pretty late. It was like after 9 o'clock, and I already took a shower, so I didn't get it. But I wanted to keep the snake skin, so I, I went and got it the next day, but the meat had already went bad. But I skinned it, and now the snake skin is in my freezer, and I, I just got to get a leather kit and make me a belt and hat band and stuff like that. So, yeah. But they, they do eat it, though. I, I've, I've heard some good things about it. Maybe maybe it tastes like chicken. I don't know. You know, they say everything tastes like chicken, but yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll try. It. I, I told them next one I get, uh, I want to keep it fresh. So if if uh, if he either he get it or I get it, but you know, I'm I'm gonna make sure. I, uh, is that is that a particularly tasty snake, uh, rattlesnake? Uh, well, I mean, I guess it depends on you know, like where you are, like and say in Florida, some people maybe the pythons or the boas here is it's more rattlesnakes than anything so that's just kind of one of the and, and they have beautiful skin too so <laughs> that's uh because they do roundups and everything um not here in particular but not far away from here okay this a whole world sounds very yeah, Texas doesn't it? <laughs> uh, who's reading now? I think it's me. Okay. Imagination first appears as redemption, the leap that saves us in an impossible moment. Later, we realize that imagination is everywhere. The world dreaming us while we dream the world. But first, redemption. New life redeems the brokenness, brokenness that went into its making. Infinity, infinitely, how do you no. say? Yes. In, infinite, infinite, yeah. Infinitely. Infinitely. How about, is it infant? Infant? She infinite. said it right. She's, she said it right the last time. Oh, okay. <laughs> infinitely. Keep it <laughs> infinitely. Thank you. Infinitely divisible. Life makes more life. Each piece is a child, Horus, being born, the infant Jesus waving with his arm, arms amid the straw in the manger. In the manger. 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 Yeah. So I suppose it's me. Fragments are also secrets, treasures changed a little by, um, by their time in the dark cave. They can't give quite, sorry, they can't quite be brought into the light because they do not mean something. They are. Life, the pieces in the shrine, endlessly assembled in endless ways. A repetition, a kiss, a way of caressing that developed because of not having a bed and embracing awkwardly in botanical gardens and cars, a part of the body that becomes an icon, the parts of the body, the upper arm, the curve of the belly, then become charged because they are near the hidden parts. All these fragments link us to the nets of life. We are all in pieces and all blessed. Dreams which are the soul's nightly accounting with itself often display the condition of not knowing and the new birth that follows. Here's the dream of a Buddhist teacher a little before he began to teach. A dream that shows disintegration as the beginning of independence and force. 
I was an unborn fawn in the belly of the doe. Coyotes began to chase the deer and I felt the rocking as the mother ran. Other deer escaped, but the pregnant doe was not so fast on, though she fought hard, was pulled down and torn to pieces. I too was eaten. Only, only our bones were left, white bones on the stony ground. Then my bones reassembled and I leapt up. A fierce strength came over me. I was exhilarated. Watch out, coyote. I yelled as I dashed towards him. The coyotes began to flee. The person torn to pieces, eaten by life, and reassembled is a common shamanic theme. This dream allows us to understand the personal process underneath the mythic story of the God who dies and is reborn. There is wounding, mortification, loss, but something follows. Bones do not easily rot. Beyond birth and death, they're the life that is not destroyed even when we die. Since the dreamer here is still bones, we can also expect some further development as the soul inhabits the man more fully. The shaman, like the bodhisattva, brings back knowledge for the benefit of the community. And this is the soul's goal as well, to bring the light of the spirit down to earth. Fragmentation doesn't mean only physical pain. It also refers to helplessness, the incompetence and clumsiness that seems such a part of being human, the bodhisattva road. If we never know that helplessness, we have not engaged with this one actual life. The same teacher spoke of the way certain experiences restore him in difficult times. I have wandered a lot, but I am always at home when I hear the sound of winter rain on the roof. It brings with it the wind, the gas fire, the smell of wet wool, steaming. In my childhood, gales shook the house and my mother had us pray for the mariners. The fire and the weather bring back my grandfather. He would set his elbows on the blue formica, formica kitchen table, smoke players, cork tip cigarettes with an anchor on the package and begin to talk. His stories led me out from my seat by the gas fire into Atlantic storms, dismastings, the eating of ships, rats, and other joys. When I am in pain, certain things just appear. Memories or tastes which bring memories, like sweet tea with milk. They make the world possible again. He is a shaman. It is in, in Mexico, in the pre-Hispanic cultures, it is a man that uh, guides persons to spiritual practice and things like that. And they eat in the desert, peyote, you know, this root, and they make rituals and things like that. I heard talk was talking yesterday to someone who had a um, two percent chance of surviving a cancer and went to uh, a ritual with a shaman and took some herbal thing and uh, now she's fine. Wow. Okay, who's reading now? Me? I think I am. Oh, okay. I just read. Okay. So we are uh, at, I have wandered a lot, right? Or? I don't uh, think so. Okay, so uh, <laughs> any, no, it, there was, yeah, the paragraph, any bit. Any, any bit of the universe. Yeah, I, I see it now. Any, Any bit? bit? <laughs> I think Kim is reading, Travis. 
Oh, I thought because I was after a Milan. So anyway. Oh, did Milan read? No, no. I read. Oh, okay. <laughs> so then Any... Milan should read. <laughs> no, Kim should read. I, I don't know. <laughs> Any bit of the universe can serve to restore the, the lot. Even common peace having the power to make the world anew. For Proust, the taste of the madeleine soaked in tea was a door into childhood's garden where the past was intact with its food. Conversation, servants, grandmothers, and embraces. And through the past, the present became alive. And now, Milan. The pieces of the world are precisely so. For this man, it had to be the scent of damp, damp good. The same, the sound of a winter gale, another scent, another noise, another taste couldn't do. Long ago, Ling Yu was enlightened as he turned a bend and so peach blossoms across the valley. Their crimson shocked him into a new life. For him, apple blossoms could never do. The eternal consoles, the eternal consoles us. I think it's consoles us. Consoles us, thank you. The eternal consoles us through the local genius of place and everything ordinary has its own spell. We endure because of this spell. It remakes us out of the vast night and scatters us generously, generous, generously into the world. I just want to see with the monks. Okay, the monk's child. We got quite a bit. Should we stop here and do this next week? Okay. What do you guys think? What time is it? It's 7.58. And we usually stop at eight and then uh, spend 10 minutes. Yeah, I think it's a, it seems like a good place to start. And and then I can advertise. I'll advertise the new uh, book. Um, that it will start in two weeks, and then oh. and then we can finish this next week. That sound good? Yeah. It's um it's um Joan Sutherland's book on koans Ooh. that Flint and Peg uh, really like. Koans are always fun. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to, uh, what do I need to do? Okay, so we're on page 228. I'm going to write it down. Oh, we did 10 pages. 228. Uh, 280. Uh, okay, so... We're going to write until not eight ten, or whatever you're going to do. I can't get Cody's rattlesnake out of my mind. So, <laughs> Cody, is it is it like in a spiral? Oh, uh, you what mean what shape like, is it in in your freezer? It just. But you're you're muted. Or maybe just, you're not muted, it, but oh, maybe it's me. It, it's just staying in the in the in a Ziploc bag. <laughs> in the... Okay, now I'll try. I say it's just it's just staying in the Ziploc bag. It's not like spiraled or anything. It, it's... Oh, because you took all the insides out. Right. I see. Okay. Who would like to share?
You guys gonna make me share? Yeah. I didn't do a drawing. What? I feel cheated. Well, I, I unfortunately saw a text message and it kind of upset me that someone was thinking out. Do you know that word thinking out? Sleep. Is that the real world where our inhibitions sleep and our desires fly? We might be stuck in life, but in sleep we are alive. Which is real? Which one is me? The one awake or the one asleep? Where do I want to end up? Asleep or awake? Imagine. I like that, Kim. <laughs> you were kind of on the same uh, track I was with my thoughts. I tried to write it and then I realized it really needed to be a poem, I think, because it was hard to explain um, what I wanted to put down. But um, some time ago, I was sitting in the morning after meditating, facing um, the bay window that I have. And it was early morning, it was in a winter and there was kind of this mist outside and the sun had barely come up. And I was just in a really quiet place. I didn't want to get my coffee yet. So I was just staring out the window and all of a sudden out of the mist next to this oak tree that I was looking at, this large deer just it like it appeared out of the mist it wasn't walking it just like formed itself <laughs> it seemed to me right there in the mist and it looked was looking at me and I was looking at it and I thought to myself well that wasn't there before I could swear it wasn't there before um, and I thought did I manifest this deer and tonight I'm thinking, did the deer manifest me? <laughs> I mean, it just felt like um, amazing. And I thought that nothing exists without my, this imaginative, conscious, creative, <laughs> you know, um, thing that I am <laughs> you know it, it was just it was reminding me of the dream that you're talking about you know it it felt very dreamlike to me and uh and then I had the question of how did it get there and did I do that now the question tonight is did it do this <laughs> uh, that's a great story, Gail. Thank you. Can, can you read your piece again, please? Sleep. Is that the real world where our inhibitions sleep and our desires fly? We might be stuck in life, but in sleep we are alive. Which is real? Which one is me? The one awake or the one asleep? Where do I want to end up, asleep or awake? Imagine. Thank you. And Emily is asleep. I bet Emily's had a long day. No, I ate too much pasta. Oh. <laughs> a carb coma, coma right? Yeah. We never know. Anything else, Trouty? You're a, a little bit muted. Still a little muted. You did not unmute me. Hmm. I'm responsible now? Well, I don't know. I think you unmuted me before no. the break. No? Oh, I, I muted everyone. Yes. Before we didn't, but that's as far as I went. Oh, I see. But you did not unmute. No, I don't do that. Whatever. Yeah. And I have the book sort of 
on that corner of, of the computer. I have it propped up so I don't bend over, but so I, I've been working on stuff early. No, I, I was walking King King. Oh, I'm good. Not, I'm not writing. I like that he was talking about sleep and then death in the end. You know, they're, they're really uh, uh, connected. Sleep and death. Yeah, I've heard someone say that when you drop into deep sleep, you're literally dying. You're dying to your sense of uh, what you are, your identity. You're completely dead to it. Indeed. You're not dreaming in that state, are you? In the deepest mm -hmm. sleep? Mm -hmm. No, you're you you you're completely in in um, I guess the womb, <laughs> the dark, the source, maybe. What about you, Milan? What are you dreaming about? About resting. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a long day? Yeah, a long year. <laughs> There's not much more to go, Malin. Um, it's going to be ending soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was raining in here. Um, so I wrote a little bit. I, I was sure I didn't like it, but uh, I was I, I like this idea. The last uh, I think it was the last idea of the paragraph saying uh, life um, the fragments of life is just life. Um, so I wrote, we think our life is complete. Some other times we are looking to complete it with studies, with a person, with a career but we are just drops of rain in the middle of a storm. We are falling together. We share that experience, that journey, that could let us go, the cloud that let us go. And at the end, we will all be together again and form a river. Wow, very pretty. Could you, Thank uh, you. again, once more? I love that. Thank you. We think our life is complete. Some other times we are looking to complete it with studies, with a person, with a career. But we are just drops of rain in the middle of a storm. We are all falling together. We share that experience, that journey, the cloud that let us go. And at the end, we will all be together again and form a river. Oh, beautiful. That's a poem. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. You know, Melen, we're doing a special issue of our, our Just This magazine that comes from the Zen writing on uh, for Martha. Mm -hmm. And that would be a beautiful thing for, for that issue, would you, uh, if you typed it up, you know, send it to me? Could we use it? Sure, thank you. And maybe you can find an image to go with that? Okay. Okay, that would be great. Cody. I didn't write, I just sat. Okay. I'm glad you're saving electricity. <laughs> it's expensive. It's expensive, you say? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Cody, what do you think about the um, this author? You know, everything seems very kind of poetic, and he doesn't just go straight to a point, you know? Actually, yeah. I really like this book. Um, I don't know the technical terms, but I mean, it, a lot of it speaks to me. Um, or, you know, what it seems, that's what it seems when, I, when, when we're going over it. Some, sometimes I even screenshot it. Uh, 
some of the paragraphs just to go back and, and look at them because it says something so profound. Yeah, for me, sometimes something moves me, but I'm not quite sure what it was. So you're right, sometimes going back and finding just that place mm -hmm. where you kind of felt like, oh, you know, mm -hmm. that feels true. Okay. Should we call it a night? Yeah, we can do that. Sure. See you guys soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.